You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For February 6, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. As fracking has unleashed new volumes of oil and gas in the U.S., many industry proponents have held up the prospect of energy independence in the same way that sports fans like to hold up a big foam finger declaring that they're number one. But what does energy independence really mean? What is the value of it, especially if it also means increased dependence on export markets abroad? And does energy independence really mean that the U.S. is actually self-sufficient in energy, or even just in fossil fuels, in the sense that we may not need imports anymore? Actually, no, not even remotely. With the U.S. exporting more oil and gas to the rest of the world, should we be seeking to expand our exports as much as possible, or should we be thinking about stewarding those resources for our own benefit and saving them for a rainy day? The global energy trade is enormously complex, and its geopolitical implications are vast, but they're only made more complex and more vast by energy transition. If the U.S. exports gas to Europe and Asia, might you expect it to largely displace coal in their power plants? Think again. What will be the geopolitical ramifications on our relationship with Russia as we send more of our gas to India and China? And as the U.S. weans itself off coal and seeks to export more coal abroad, will it be stymied by energy transition in foreign countries as well as by political impediments at home? Even just within North America, the trade picture is so complex. Although it's probably not widely known, the U.S. is in fact the largest importer of electricity in the world. If Trump were to continue antagonizing Prime Minister Trudeau and imperil the export of electricity from Canada, would New England be able to maintain reliable grid power? And how dependent is Mexico on U.S. electricity exports? What would the alternative to electricity imports be for Mexico? And could the U.S. continue to export the electricity that Mexico needs if its own gas-fired capacity shrinks? And what are the implications of all of this for North American trade agreements? Whichever fuel you look at, and whether you look at it from the perspective of the importer or the exporter, the energy trade is fantastically complex, and the more deeply you look at it, the more complex it gets. So today we're lucky to have an expert in energy data with us who has thought deeply about all of these questions. Alex Gilbert is co-founder of Spark Library, an energy research and data firm based in Washington, D.C., who has deep expertise in cross- and interdisciplinary analysis of energy markets and regulations. We're going to try to touch on many of the interesting questions in this interview, but as you will see, we're going to barely scratch the surface on some of them. Then in the news segment, we'll take a fresh look at the prospects for coal power in India, as well as an exciting new development for solar there. We'll note an interesting new solar plant in China. We'll ask whether California utility PG&E can survive its liabilities for causing wildfires in the state. And we'll unveil the results of a couple of fun wagers between energy geeks on Twitter in 2018. But first, our conversation with Alex Gilbert, recorded January 4th, 2019. 
So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Alex, to the Energy Transition Show. Hi, Chris. So you've been looking at various aspects of how U.S. energy policy will need to evolve to take into account some of the new emerging implications of the global energy trade in which the U.S. participates, such as the strategic implications of its rising fossil fuel exports, the meaning and value of the so-called energy independence, the national security implications of changing trade implications, including Trump's tariffs, and the ways that rising U.S. shale production will affect the energy policy both at home and abroad. But to Today, naturally, I want to focus in on the implications for energy transition. (laughs) So I think I'm going to suggest that we just start by walking through each of the fuels and see what we can say about each one from a transition standpoint. Sound good? Yeah, I think that's a great way to go. Okay, so let's start with oil because it is still the master commodity after all. The one commodity that makes it possible to produce all the others. And right away, we have to separate oil into crude and refined products. So let's start with crude, especially U.S. tight oil production from fracking. And now this has famously led to increased exports of U.S. crude oil. But, you know, how much of that has to do with the configuration of the global refining complex? Simple refineries that can most easily process the type of light sweet crude that we get from fracking are mainly abroad, while the complex refineries that the U.S. mainly has were designed to process imports of heavy sour crude from places like Saudi Arabia and Venezuela and Canada. So that increase in U.S. exports isn't a sign that the U.S. is producing more than it consumes necessarily. It's in some ways just a consequence of the way that the global refining complex is set up, right? So what are the energy transition implications of increased crude exports and how much are we exporting on net right now? Those are all great questions. One of the things that I like to emphasize about this specific issue is that there's a big disconnect between what the data actually says and what's happening in industry and how things are talked about politically. Okay. So there's a lot of talks about how the U.S. is now the largest oil producer in the world, which is true, and is becoming a net exporter. That doesn't mean that we're on the same scale as, say, Saudi Arabia or Russia in terms of our exports and our influence. What it does mean is that things are changing in how we interact with the global economy when it comes to oil and associated products. So if you go ahead and look at what's happened with U.S. trade over the last about 10 years or so, initially the U.S. was at very high levels of net imports for both crude oil and for products. In 2005, is around 12.5 million barrels a day that topped out at. And as recently as about a month ago for the first time, for one week, we actually had that net import value equals zero. So that changed from 12.5 million in net oil and products import to zero is really massive. And that is one of the big stories of the shale revolution. But it's important to recognize that that's not oil. And you know what, I just want to interject for a minute there and give people some context in case they just don't happen to have the numbers off the top of their head like you and I do. (laughs) So, you know, the US consumes on average, I think around what is it about 21 million barrels a day of crude and products right now. Yep. And globally, I think production is at about Where are we, about 98 or 100, somewhere in that zone? It depends on how you specifically defined it, but yeah, that's about right. We're around 20% of total global production and consumption. Right, okay. So essentially what you're saying is that the U.S. was importing around two-thirds of its petroleum products that it consumes back in 2005. And for one brief shining moment recently, that went to zero. But that is not to say that 
the U.S. is now crude independent because we still import a lot of refined product from elsewhere in the world while we're also exporting crude. And I think we still export some refined product as well, right? Yes, for sure. So if you look at the numbers, one of the things that's happened is that the U.S. started reducing net oil import specifically because of the shale revolution. And so when it comes to oil, you hinted at one of the big things that people don't really understand about oil. Oil is not a commodity. Oil is multiple commodities that is used in refineries to produce multiple end-use products. And so when we actually talk about oil, we're talking about a set of liquid hydrocarbons that vary in the length and basically the dirtiness. And so when you look at how we define it, we usually call it heavy and light crude. Most of the shale revolution has been about light oil production. When you actually look at the areas where we get our heavy crude from, those imports have not changed significantly. We are importing less from Saudi Arabia and other locations, but the U.S. imports of heavy oil have actually flatlined. And so if you look at a lot of the numbers, U.S. net oil imports are declining, but U.S. imports, gross imports, are flat. And that's because what we're doing is we started exporting all of our light oil that we just can't handle in our refineries abroad. So one of the things that is important to understand about how the U.S. interacts with the world oil market is that we actually have about 20% of the world's refining complexes inside the United States. And most of those are the most complex refining complexes in the world. So this heavy oil can really, it's ideal to send it to the U.S. because we can process it better than anywhere else. But when you actually look at other countries around the world, particularly when it comes to energy trade, Russia and Saudi Arabia are notable because they have very little refining capacity. Whereas China, who does not produce much oil, is booming its refining capacity right now. So there's basically three kind of markets that are happening and changing right now. You've got oil, you've got refining, and you've got the products markets. And the refining is kind of the fixed infrastructure when it comes to oil, kind of like the power plants. And so that's relatively set in stone. And so the oil and the fuel markets are changing around that right now. So where does the U.S. stand in terms of net imports of oil and refined products on an annual basis? So right now, on an annual basis, the U.S. is on the verge of becoming zero net oil and products importer or exporter. It's going to depend on what specific projections that you look at. And right now, we're going to be kind of flirting with different weeks where that actually happens. But for an annual number, it could be reasonable that within two or three years, we will be annually throughout the year exporting oil and products on a net basis. Fascinating. I mean, this is a transition within the oil complex that I honestly did not think we were ever going to get to. I mean, the tight oil boom has been much more successful than I ever expected it to be, certainly than I expected it to be 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. But getting to that point where on a net basis, we're actually on the verge of becoming an exporter is remarkable. However, I think the significance of that has potentially been overstated. <laughs> yep. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But you know, just to kind of round out this subject, let's talk about refined products for a minute. Yeah. The U.S. is still importing a lot of refined product, I think, mainly in the form of gasoline. How much are we importing of that still? So right now, our imports of refined products are somewhere around about 2 million barrels a day, a little bit less for last year. That has been relatively flat for a while now, and a lot of that is composed of motor gasoline. Uh, About 50% is motor gasoline and then blending components for motor gasoline. 
and a fair amount of that is from Canada. One thing that is important to emphasize when it comes to the oil economy is that our interconnections with Canada are especially strong, both in trade flows and then also just in terms of companies going back and forth. Right. That said, though, when you look at what's actually happening specifically with net gasoline trade, that's actually got to the point where we're exporting that in small amounts right now. And then the overall products trade has become very, very large. I believe our total exports of products now is about 6 million barrels a day, which is very high. And what that means that our net exports of products is 4 million barrels a day. So if we're really talking about the export implications of the shale revolution in at least the last five years, it's not so much about U.S. exporting more light oil. I mean, we're doing that. It's really about the U.S. exporting some more light oil and a lot more refined products. And which refined products is the U.S. mainly exporting? So the U.S. is really exporting a mix of them. So if we're talking about a barrel of oil, depending on what barrel of oil you're talking about, 40 to 50% of it is going to be gasoline. About 25% is going to be distilled fuel oil. About 8% is going to be jet oil. And then the rest is just a mix of different types of hydrocarbons. But you're talking about the crack there, not the exports. Yes, yes, exactly. So that's the crack in the refineries. Right. When you look at how that translates into exports, the gasoline is actually a relatively small portion of it, of about 5 or 6 million barrels a day of exports. Finished motor gasoline is only about 1 million. The distillates are about 1.3, 1.4. And so distillates make up a very large portion relative to what we actually are refining in the U.S. that we then send abroad. And then also related exports, fuel oil, propane, and propylene. Those together are very high. Okay. So I think what we're seeing there in that import-export balance is that the U.S. is still overwhelmingly a gasoline consumer in terms of transportation fuels, whereas much of the rest of the world runs on diesel. So we're more likely to export diesel from our refining complex. We're more likely to import gasoline from elsewhere. Is that fair to say? Yes. Okay. And the kind of exports, you know, that's not the metal distillates of diesel and jet fuel and that kind of thing, the heavier stuff like fuel oil. And I assume we're also exporting a fair amount of bunker fuel, right? Yes. So this is the heavy stuff that's used for international shipping or for heating and buildings and that kind of thing. And this is an important point is that proportionally our uh, petroleum exports are uh, much more uh, bunker fuel and that kind of dirty oils because of our high, uh, heavy oil refining capacity. Right. Okay. So with that out of the way, I guess the one other data point that I want to make sure to pull out is how much crude are we still importing uh, into our refining complex on an annual basis? On an annual basis, it's this is a, one of the more fascinating things. It's been around 7.5 to 8 million barrels for the last three or four years, and that's not changed significantly. In fact, if you actually look at the numbers, it's a little bit up from 2014, 2015. But the imports of oil have essentially flatlined around 7.5 million barrels. And so part of that is the heavy oil. Part of that is structural that just certain countries like Canada can only export to us. Right. And in fact, one of the big things that the U.S. doesn't fully appreciate is that Canadian oil has actually pushed out a lot of other foreign oil in the last 10 years. So in addition to having the U.S. become this big oil superpower, Canada is also kind of doing the same to the north. And if you look at Canadian oil exports to the U.S., they've actually increased by almost a million barrels per day in the last 10 years. And I believe that's on a net basis. If you actually look at gross exports, it's a bit higher. And that's pretty much all from the tar sands. Yep, exactly. All right. the heavy stuff from the tar sands going into that part of the U.S. where those refineries are in the Midwest and Northwest. 
Right. And that highlights the significance of the long debate over the Keystone XL pipeline and so on, right? Because that's the main route by which we'd be bringing in additional imports of Canadian crude. And I think it's important for people to realize, in case they're not intimately familiar with this subject, that what we're importing from the tar sands is actually a synthetic crude. Mm-hmm. That what's actually produced in the tar sands is not crude oil. It's basically an unfinished kind of hydrocarbon that nature hasn't completed turning into crude oil. And so what they have to do is upgrade it in Canada with sort of a pre-refining method, if I can call it that, dilute it and turn it into a synthetic heavy crude that can actually flow through a pipeline and get down to the U.S. refining complex where it's treated like other sorts of heavy crudes that we do import from places like Saudi Arabia and Venezuela, right? Yep, and that was one of the big things about the specific pathways of those pipelines is that instead of building a pipeline out to, say, British Columbia, which they're now trying to do, to export directly to the global markets, they were trying to get to U.S. refineries first just because the U.S. refineries were the parts of the capacity that can handle that heavy oil. Right. Okay, so with kind of the general picture on U.S. crude imports and refined products and exports Mm -hmm. now having been established, let's talk about the implications of this. I mean, for one thing, if we're still importing... 7 million barrels a day, more or less, of crude from other countries. And we're still importing 2 million barrels a day, more or less, of refined product, mainly gasoline from other countries. Then this concept of U.S. energy independence is a little bit you really have to ask yourself, what's the significance of that, right? I mean, it's essentially half of the total consumption that we're still importing, even though on a net basis, we're also exporting a lot. And on a net basis, we could be, you know, looking at becoming a net exporter. So talk to me about what you think the implications of that are from a energy security standpoint, from a global influence standpoint. And, you know, let's see if we can get at what's the significance of that for energy transition. Yeah, so if we're talking about, say, pure energy security and that do we have the access to the raw materials that we desire, if you include Canada and Mexico as part of the U.S., which for practical purposes when it comes to trade they are, the U.S. can be pretty close to energy independent. It just would be very, very expensive. And there's certain things that we can do really easily. As we've talked about the light oil production, now almost all light oil refining capacity in the U.S. is met with domestic production. And that has pretty significant financial benefits. That said, though, if you're really trying to look at what's happening, the U.S. is becoming more integrated in global oil trade than it has been. Not only is it one of the largest demanders, long time it was the largest demander and that was the issue. There are now multiple demanders in the world that are that size. The developing world's growing. China surpassed imports compared to the U.S. So that's a huge part that's really changing the global oil markets. But at the same time, the U.S. is now a big supplier and it's the biggest refiner. So if you look at that, we really have a large keystone role in the oil market that we didn't have 10 years ago. And that has pretty significant implications for economics, for geopolitics. One thing that I think we'll be seeing a lot more of is questions about whether the local environmental impacts in the U.S. are worth the exports. There is some substantial damage, depending on what specific part of the complex you're talking about in terms of environmental pollution, in terms of increased drilling. So you're going to see a lot more of those kind of battles. That said, if you're really talking about is the U.S. meeting its energy security goals today? We really are. The problem is that the way that we talk about it and the way that we think about it publicly is still so framed from this idea of we must reduce foreign oil as opposed to how do we play this new role in an increasingly complex global oil market. 
We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now, a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. One of the recurring themes on this podcast has been that we should be very skeptical about expectations for India to power its growth with coal in the coming years, and should take all official projections for strong growth for coal power in India with a large pinch of salt. Over the past several years, we have reported in this news segment a steady drumbeat of indications that coal's future in India isn't all it's cracked up to be. From the shelving of plans for big new coal-fired power plants, to much lower-than-expected capacity factors for the existing fleet of coal plants, to investment dollars being diverted away from coal and toward renewables because they're so much cheaper. And we explored those factors in detail in episodes 11, 12, and 21. So it should come as no surprise that fresh reporting by Simon Mundi of Mumbai in the Financial Times shows India's coal-fired power plant projects are in deep financial distress and private investment in coal power has dried up, as plants struggle to get supplies of coal and cut deals to sell their power to distribution companies. The biggest problem? Cheap renewables, as solar in particular is now significantly cheaper than coal power. The state-run power producer NTPC has canceled its plans to build several large projects, while large private sector coal power producers are investing hundreds of millions of dollars in renewable projects. According to Tim Buckley of the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, there is no longer an economic case for the highest-cost coal plays in inland areas of the country's south and west, which have to transport coal long distances from the northeastern coal fields, while the Energy and Resources Institute of India, based in New Delhi, has a scenario in which coal power falls from 57% of India's electricity mix today to just 38% a decade from now. Item 2. Indian Railways, the national railway system in India, which manages the fourth largest railway network in the world by size, announced in December that it plans to build 30 gigawatts of solar on its vacant land and along its tracks. To help... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. 
You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.